All right. Well, James, that was, that was really kind. I, I appreciate that a lot. Um, it's been a fun 14 months. I am going to need your prayers because, um, uh, unfortunately, uh, my accountability partner that makes sure that I eat at Chick-fil-A at least once a week is going to go and be a uh, camp counselor this summer. He's going to go serve Jesus instead of eating Chick-fil-A with me, and I'm not. Uh, Brosnan, I, I'm upset at you. Actually, I'm proud of you. I'm kidding. Uh, but um, I'm excited. I did want to say, too, uh, like James said, uh, for any of y'all out here who served in the military or had family members who did, uh, some who sacrificed their lives for that, I really appreciate it. I'm thankful uh, that ultimately I'm a, I'm a citizen of God's kingdom, but that if I could be on, in any country on earth, I would choose this one. And today I'm remembering my grandpa. Um, he's been with Jesus about seven years now, but uh, he served in the army uh, during the Cold War era from 57 to 61 and uh, he was in Virginia Beach doing a lot of anti-aircraft uh, monitoring with the Army at that time. So uh, I'm thinking of him, and um, just I hope you all have a great Memorial Day tomorrow. Uh, well, you know, with Memorial Day, uh, my brain immediately started uh, when James and I talked and said, hey, uh, this is going to be the Sunday I get to uh, share. Uh, I thought, well, you know what? I started saying, God, what, what are we going to talk about? You know what? What, what are memories, memorials, you know, where, where, where are you going with this? And I started just thinking about memories. And uh, I think we live in a world, uh, I think we live in a country that really enjoys memories a lot. Uh, there's a lot of cultural memories. Uh, it can be a little bit bizarre sometimes. Uh, you know, I, I've started seeing like teenagers, like teenage girls who are wearing the same jeans that Jennifer Aniston wore in Friends you know, in the mid-90s, and it's just, it's just kind of bizarre, you know, uh, they're almost like what some would call mom jeans, you know, but now the teenagers are wearing them, so they've remembered. Uh, you know, the humor of the Princess Bride uh, 29 years ago has become really mainstream. You know, when you say, you keep using that word, I do not think it means what you think it means, you know, uh, almost anybody almost any age can resonate with that, they remember that. Um, Tim Helms flannel shirts from 1989, his the college years, they possess that vintage it factor that girls crave. Um, he can't actually wear his own shirts anymore. Uh, so I'm sorry about that, Tim. Uh, but I also commend you for being uh, so in. Yeah, uh, You're almost more likely to come across 80s music when you're scanning the radio. There's been a new appreciation for that. Guitar Hero had a lot to do with that. Uh, and also furniture that just like a decade ago was decaying in college dorms is now almost envied by designers. They just want to get their hands on that. You know, I think about couches that my friends had that were not comfortable and smelled funky. You know, those are the ones that, like, we probably could have been making a chunk of change if I had been born 10 years later. Uh, missed my chance. But on a more serious side of stuff, there's also a lot of personal memories we have. Uh, a lot of you probably remember where you were uh, when uh, September 11th hit, uh, when you found out the news. That was 15, almost 15 years ago. Uh, maybe it was when the Challenger exploded in 1986, uh, maybe it was Kennedy being shot in 1963, or uh, maybe it was Pearl Harbor back in 1941. You have memories associated with that, and your personal memories, some are good, some of them are bad. Uh, with your home life, uh, they could deal with, uh, you know, your, your hobbies. It could be uh, on the painful side where you lost a family member, uh, where you cleared a career hurdle, or you didn't clear a career hurdle, and you fell flat on your face. Um, and ultimately, memories, uh, I think they're a pretty cool gift, because they do a lot of stuff. One, they shape how we think, they shape how we act, they shape how we speak. Uh, it affects how you perceive the world. It affects how you understand relationships. Uh, memories can be shared with other people to build camaraderie, or they can also be just kept to yourself to reflect on, um, get a lot of joy from that. Uh, they have a huge impact on the way you make decisions. 
Uh, they're super important. Uh, no matter what emotion is associated, uh, you would probably say you cherish your memories. You maybe dread them at times, but you ultimately see them as a gift. Most of us do. And uh, if you know me very well, I'm a really nostalgic human being. Uh, you know, I, I really love, uh, there's nothing I love more than sitting my boys down and watching like cartoons that I watched when I was a kid. I, I, watching DuckTales with them. They're asking me to watch DuckTales. It's like warming my heart. I, I just, I love that. I love my savior, my family, my friends, music, sports, Dr. Pepper. Um, I really love Dr. Pepper. I was just in Waco and I didn't get to go to the museum. And it, it really, it, it hurts me that I didn't get to do that. But what I really love is knowing the story behind that, the this, this story behind what brought people to where they are, uh, the story behind, you know, oh, my team won a championship. Well, what, what was behind that? What did they have to do to get that? I love knowing the story that my favorite band, U2, when they formed their band in the late 70s, they didn't even know how to play their instruments yet. You know, I, I love knowing that. It just makes, it just shows just, oh, I just love it. And I think that a lot of times um, we kind of get, to see through that Jesus' broader story of what he's doing in the world. But there's a problem, and that is that um, memories, uh, they do have some downsides. Typically, they fade, and they're eventually forgotten. They can usually only be shared and understood to a certain extent um, if you weren't the one who lived and experienced them. Uh, Typically, they die with the person who experienced them. Uh, they influence and shape us, but they don't really define our identity. They don't really define our purpose. Uh, and they really only take us as far as the present. They can tell us how we got here. They, they can't really take us past that. Um, and so we need more than memories if we're going to move forward in life. You know, knowing our past and knowing our present is great, but, but what are we supposed to do about the future? You know, Ultimately, you know, we're going to have plot twists ahead. A lot of us would say uh, our, our life is like a really good book. But, you know, really good books have really rough chapters. <laughs> really good books have villains. Uh, it has really down points. Uh, and it has just about as many negative emotions as positive. So what are we going to do to push ahead? Because ultimately, we're not just stewards of what God gives us when we receive. We're also stewards of what we experience in life. You know, it's kind of cliche. I heard people always say, you know, God never wastes a hurt. Well, I don't think God ever wastes a success. I don't think God ever wastes anything. He works everything for good. So if that's the case, then we can't afford to let something as precious and as valuable as memories just let us look backward into the side. We've got to figure out, well, what's going to allow us to look forward? Well, I think there's something that we need. And what we need is not just memories. We need memorials. I really think we need Memorials. And here's why. It's because memories inform, but memorials inspire. Think on that for a second. Memories inform, but memorials inspire. You see, ultimately, it's memories from our past that they're what informs our present. You know, history books can teach you what happened and who, what, and when. It can even kind of explain it. But a history book, a historical account, can't really invite you into the story. It's mostly informational. You know, you just receive information. But memorials that you build in the present, those inspire your future. Those are what allow us to commemorate. And it it almost brings life to what happened in the past. Uh, it, It actually gives us a visible reminder, like a point of reference. It kind of invites us into the story. It helps us invite others in. It's not just informational. It's transformational. 
Memorials are great. You know, an example would be the 9-11 memorial. You know, whether you visit it or not, you've probably seen lots of footage of this. And, and you go and it just invites you in that this is a part of our nation's story. You, you feel it. You sense the emotion. You know, you're not just learning about something. You're, you're stepping into that. You know, and as we follow Jesus, establishing memorials and not just settling for having memories, it, it does a lot. It reminds us who God is, reminds us what God's doing, and it shows us who he's transforming And if you know those things, you know, we'll know who we are. We'll know what we were, are supposed to do, what we were created to do and who we're supposed to do it with. On all three of those fronts, it grounds our identity. It grounds our mission that flows out of identity and it grounds our community that comes together around that mission because we share it with other people and that's how God made it to be. You know, it, it lets us celebrate and experience joy, but also mourn in healthy ways, depending on what it is. It reminds us what's really important. Memorials remind us what's not. It reminds us that it's not about us, but it still includes us. I love that about memorials. Ultimately, memorials generate hope and excitement for the future, even though there's a bunch of unknowns. You know, and when we live in a world where, uh, you know, in our culture, there's all this noisy doomsday ranting of the news media And you also see a lot of skeptical, cynical comments probably from people you know that are on your social media channels, you know. And most of what they do is generate worry about the future. What's going to happen? Where's it going to be? Are are we going to crash and burn? You know, but when you're willing to establish a memorial, you push back against that. When you are willing to establish a memorial, it reminds us God's not just for you. God is with you. God is with us. And that, that's always been the case. He's always been for us. He's always been with us. The bottom line is that memories inform and memorials inspire. And so today, we're going to look a little bit at how God used memorials in the Bible. So if you want to get a head start, uh, whether you have your hard copy Bible uh, or if you have your tablet or your phone, if you want to flip to Joshua 4, we're going to be uh, uh, using the ESV today. And I do encourage you, you can take notes on it, uh, you know, use social media and stuff. Somebody ask well, can I uh, actually make a call during the service? Will that bother you? I said, as long as they don't speak in English, that was fine with me. So if anyone does that, I, I mistakenly gave permission. So, you know, just roll with me on that. Um, I wanted to give you a heads up, though. We're going to be reading from the book of Joshua. And if you have familiarity with that, you know that uh, it's one of those books where there's just uh, a lot of misconceptions floating around, a lot of misunderstandings, a lot of opinions about it that are conflicting and even kind of contentious sometimes. Um, it can get kind of confusing. And a piece of that is just the fact that the Old Testament was written in Hebrew and we start translating it and, and there's only so much you can bring across into English. And so the book of Joshua, the, all these stories happen to a, in a different era at a different time, but it's the same God. And I just wanted to toss out a couple things that we know because what this is typically called, the story we're looking at is right before what they call the conquest of Canaan, all right? And so I want to just lay the groundwork real quick. First thing is this, the Bible makes it very clear, Old Testament and affirming the New Testament, that the God of Israel, he created everything and he owns everything. And that means that he has the right to distribute the territory and the land and the resources according to his will, and he's sovereign over everything and everyone, all right? And so we want to remember that. 
We want to remember that since all people are sinners, uh, that whenever judgment comes into the picture and consequences are paid uh, for doing things our way instead of God's way, um, in Joshua, what is actually happening is there are people who are paying consequences, and God is actually using his people, Israel, as agents of dealing out, dishing out those consequences. Uh, the other thing is when people entered into a covenant with God, this is thing number three, that is that they actually lived in a theocracy. Not like us, we're a democracy, a democratic republic. And so that was this weird, unique sort of combination where uh, the church and the state, what we call the church and state, it was meshed into one. So when you had a membership in the people of Israel, it was both political, but it was also religious. And it kind of gave you this obligation. That was when you come into this land that God had promised that you've been waiting to go into, if you looked around and you allowed all these people living in the land who uh, were committing idolatry, who uh, were living lives of injustice, and uh, committing acts of, of evil, um, if they didn't deal with that, then they were gonna get dragged right down into it. And if you keep reading uh, in Joshua and then on to Judges, you see that, that unfortunately that is what happened. And the last thing is this, um, even though they lay out these laws and God says, I want you to go in and, and, and take this land because this land was promised to you long ago, um, typically the way this was written, it was written in a really uncompromising, unconditional way, like this is how it is. And yet when Israel actually started applying these laws and they got into the land, there was some room for the Canaanites to survive and surrender. If they recognized um, you know, who God was and they lived in awe of him and they professed faith in him, uh, they could actually come and do life with Israel. There was an example of Rahab, if you read on ahead as, uh, in the Battle of Jericho, and also the Gibeonites, even though they're a little bit manipulative. So I wanted to throw that out there because I know some of you all, you, know, you probably go home from the sermon and you reflect on things. You read back over it and you maybe read on ahead. And I just wanted that to be able to sit on your brain um, as we kind of go into it. And so our account begins in Joshua 4, verse 1. And the people of Israel, they've been wandering for 40 years in the desert. And it was a consequence for not trusting that God could lead them to victory when they got into the land. And Moses, their legendary leader who led them out of Egypt, uh, he's died. He did not, he's not going with them. And they're being led by Joshua. Joshua is one of two spies out of 12 that 40 years before had gone into the land. And he came back and when there were 10 reports saying, oh, we got no shot. We should, you know, they were very fearful. Joshua and his buddy Caleb said, no, no, we, we got this because we've got God. He's not just for us. He's with us. He's going. We, we got this. Well, unfortunately, uh, they went with the majority And uh, of that generation, the only two guys that survived and are entering this land are Joshua and Caleb. And they've got a problem. They're getting ready to go into the land, but there is a river in front of them, and that's the Jordan River. And this river's at flood stage, which means it's going to be really hard to cross. Uh, The Jordan River's not a really huge river. A lot of times a year, it wouldn't be very hard to cross. But when it's at flood stage, like any river, it's not the time to be crossing, And so what happens is God actually miraculously parts the waters to allow him to cross. So if you'll flip to verse 1 of Joshua chapter 4, we're going to dive into this story. All right. So it says, when all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, take 12 men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, take 12 stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly and bring them over with you and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. All right, so he gives the command and this is the first of seven times. If you read the whole book of Joshua, seven times God says, hey, I want you to take rocks and build a memorial pile of stones, all right? 
And this was the number of completeness. He wants to make sure they know to do this um, before they even go across the river so they don't forget to do this. It's super important. It's almost like he's asking them, hey, I want you to press pause because you know the battle you're gonna fight in the land is important, but the battle in your heart and the battle in your mind, it's gonna be so crucial that this pile of rocks is there. They had 12 tribes that everybody descended from. Every tribe's represented. They're going through the river together. They're gonna go into the land together. They're united as one. And the rock pile is going to be located on the west side, close to where um, their camp is. And this pile of rocks was going to be really crucial because this is going to be their base of operations. So we're going to look at this first map. I got a couple maps for those of you who this helps out a little bit. So they came up the east side of the Dead Sea, and then they started cutting west up where it kind of says Abel Shatim. And they would have come across, and where they came across, if we could go ahead um, and jump to that second map really quick here. Um, they would have crossed, before they went, they actually sent a couple spies to Jericho, and so they're going to cross here, and the camp is going to be at Gilgal, kind of in that general area. They're going to be about five miles from Jericho. So this is the Jordan River, north of the Dead Sea. This is where they're crossing. So this is where this is happening. All right, so moving on ahead to verse 4. It says, Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he'd appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel that this may be a sign among you. Let's go ahead and jump to verse seven. And when your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you should tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. And when it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. And so they're setting up these stones. And this is supposed to be a reminder of their history with God. It's supposed to be front and center and say, this is who God is. This is what God has done. It's a visual conversation starter. This is a help to parents. Now, I got a four-year-old right now. Miles is four. And I've read different stats saying that um, four-year-olds can ask more than 400 questions a day. Uh, I would even submit that maybe that estimate's a little low some days. Um, For, you know, I I would say it's definitely low a few days. But the point is, you know, if there's a pile of rocks close to your camp, your kids are going to ask, hey, what are the rocks about, mom and dad? And it's God just kind of giving this soft toss saying, here you go. I'm saying that you need to pass on your love for me to your kids. Here's your chance, because this is the entry point. Well, let me tell you about these rocks. Let me tell you about the God who told us to pile those rocks and what he did and who he is. You know, it's this really beautiful thing. It's like the parent just gets to say, you know, God was here with us. God did a great thing. He's still here with us. He's still doing great things. Memorials introduce kids to the fact that God is good and God is great. You very, very rarely will make a decision to follow Jesus at any point in your life until you are convinced that God is good and God is great. Over and over again, we see that. And it inspires kids. You know, this pile of rocks, it may just seem like a pile of rocks, but it would inspire kids to be who God created them to be and recognize they're created in his image. Because like we said before, memorials, memories inform, but memorials inspire. Memories inform, but memorials inspire. And as we move on into the story, we get to the point where they're actually in action in verse 8. It says, And the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded, and they took up 12 stones out of the midst of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, just as the Lord told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to the place where they lodged, and they laid them down here. 
Now, before we move on, you may notice this is kind of repetitive. What is the deal? Well, for a long time, they didn't always write stuff down, and this was an oral tradition. And so part of the reason it's so repetitive, when something's repetitive, it helps you memorize it. And there's a good chance that just the way the story's even being told, it's kind of like the memorial. A kid would pick up on it and remember it if it's repetitive. So we're reading it going, why are you repeating yourself? Get on with it. But in this culture, where they didn't necessarily write everything down, uh, this was really crucial. All right, so roll with it. Let's go on with verse 9. And Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan in the place where the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood. And they're there to this day. So when this person wrote this, the, the stones were still there. For the priest bearing the Ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord commanded Joshua to tell the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. Now, we're not sure if this is a second group of stones, uh, the way it's written in the original language of Hebrew. Uh, it could be that he made a pile in the middle and made one on land. It could be that they kind of gathered them and then took them out. Either way, uh, the memorial's being built, and the priests have just been standing in the riverbed with poles on their shoulders and the ark that represented God's presence with his people. And they had gone in, the water backed up, and all the people are walking by. So you kind of get this image of all these people And in uh, the second half of verse 10, it says, the people passed over in haste. And when the people had finished passing over, the ark of the Lord and the priest passed over before the people. And the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh passed over armed before the people of Israel as Moses had told them. And 40,000 ready for war passed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. And on that day, The Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him just as they stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. Let's go ahead and read verses 15 to 18 just together up here on the screen. It says, And the Lord said to Joshua, Command the priest bearing the ark of the testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priest, Come up out of the Jordan. And when the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came up from the midst of the Jordan and the soles of the priest's feet were lifted up on the dry ground, the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all of its banks just like before. What I loved when I read this was it says the people passed over in haste. There's this eagerness in them. They've been waiting and they've been waiting and they've been waiting. They've been in the wilderness. They're sick of the wilderness. They know this promise is there. They're probably like a lot of us if we got to Carowinds uh, right at the beginning and you're just so excited because it's like, I can ride whatever ride I want and I do not have to wait in the line. I'm going. You know, that's kind of the attitude they have of, hey, there's things to do. Uh, there's promises that we get to experience. Woohoo! You know, and they're really, really psyched about this. And when it says the word thousand, you know, it says 40,000 thousand men. That word could also be used to connote a military division. So it's just saying there are a lot of soldiers. They're ready for business. And what's cool is it's said here that um, God exalted Joshua and they stood in awe of him, just like they stood in awe of Moses. I think it's cool with Joshua, he's already a respected leader. He was kind of a right-hand man type guy to Moses. And here he is. And what I think's neat is that He'd been in the land before. He's one of only two people who ever has been, and he knew that this was gonna be worth it. And you can imagine he probably was biting at the bit. He was the one probably telling stories that, you know what, when we're done in the wilderness, you just wait, you just hold on. I've seen this land, it is great, it's gonna be worth it. And he's the one leading. That's the type of guy you want leading your people. I love that. And it doesn't say exactly how God backed up the waters. I read a few opinions from people. Some think he could have caused a mudslide upstream. 
you know, some think that he could have just miraculously um, held the waters back. But either way, when the people get through and the priests come with the ark out of it and it suddenly goes from passable, like you can walk across it to flood stage, it probably was quite a sight to see. It was probably pretty incredible to see and it was probably really noisy. So they probably got all across, the priest came out and they all looked and went, whoa. You know, it was probably one of those ooh type moments. And we're gonna wrap up uh, the rest of this account here and kind of bring this home and say, well, what does this mean? So verse 19, it says, the people came up out of the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those 12 stones, which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal and he said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? then you shall let your children know. Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. So when they go across into this camp, this camp at Gilgal, it's gonna be their base of operations for the next six years. This is gonna be their home turf. And it's a really cool spot that God has chosen for them because they've got their source of water right there with the Jordan River. Uh, they've got the protection on their eastern uh, side on their back flank because you got the river doing that. And then looking west, there's a giant open plain. So if an enemy comes at you, you're gonna know they're coming. It's a good spot. And on top of that, um, they're five miles away from the first city that God's gonna go call them to go and engage in battle. And it's a really good time to invade because it said it's the 10th day of the first month. Well, that means that there are crops in the field, and that means you've got a food source for your soldiers. God is thinking about this stuff, and the soldiers are going to have what they need when they go forward. Now, this, I kind of like this. The meaning of the name Gilgal, it comes from the word in Hebrew that means wheel or circle. It kind of connotes the idea of to roll or rolling. And they think, they're not 100% sure, that that could have been how they actually got the stones out of the riverbed. Now, and I know he said to carry it on their shoulders. I kind of envision as a guy, like, you know, if you're representing your whole tribe, like going to the river and beat a rock, I don't know if the guy, you know, the ego's tripping a little and I'm gonna get the biggest rock I can, you know, and they're all getting out of the river. And then when they start to get out, they're like, all right, this is not happening. And they put it down and just kind of roll it the rest of the way. I, that's just kind of me, this, that's little farm kid Mike kind of speculating how that happened. I don't know if, it how, if it's how it happened, but there's a chance that it could have. And they actually went to this site where they think Gilgal is, and they found some big stones, and they rolled them. And so we got a picture here. This is what it may have looked like. Um, can we jump to the next one? Are there some with other rocks there? Okay, we'll circle back to that here in a little bit. All right. Um, so the memorial is a conversation starter. And what I love is it's not just talking about what happened where the pile of rocks. Did you catch the difference this time around? There's a lot of similarity it said not just what God did in backing up the river, it went back further than that. He said, yeah, and, and you know, God has a habit of doing this. He did this in the Red Sea too. He's not just the guy who got us across this river, but he did it at the Jordan River. God did great things and we were in the wilderness. He kept us alive. He helped us cross the Red Sea. Before that, he got us out of slavery in Egypt. And before that, he was with our patriarchs who God gave a bunch of these promises to that are about to be fulfilled and that we're gonna get to experience. So it's not just, hey kid, let me tell you what happened here. It's just opening this huge can of worms to the whole story. 
your whole history. And I, I love that. It's like God saying, here, I'm gonna make this easy for you. And so why memorials? Why is he saying in this instance and six more times through the rest of the book of Joshua, why is he saying, pile these stones up, pile these stones up? Well, ultimately God um, wants people to know how mighty he is and he wants people to live in awe of them. You saw that in the last verse, it said, uh, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. You know, I love it. It's kind of like we say at Ren. you know, our, our vision is that we exist for God's glory and our neighbor's good. That's why we're about sharing, growing, and going together. Um, you know, and this isn't just an insider's thing, and it wasn't supposed to be for Israel. It wasn't just, hey, I want all the Israelites who were on the inside to know. No, it's I want the whole land to know. You know, and some of them did know. Rahab, that's why she got to come into the people. If you read on ahead in the story, because she knew she feared God and said, that's the kind of God I want to follow. And she came into the people. And, you know, the purpose wasn't just about God, saying this is information about God. The purpose was to say, hey, you should follow this guy. You should live a life devoted to him because that's what you were made for. Memories inform and memorials inspire. And you came here today and you walked in these doors here at the Y with a mind that's full of memories, good and bad. Uh, Maybe some more recent, maybe with Memorial Day, you've got some that are a little farther back that are resonating with you. Um, And those memories happened in the past and it brought you to the present. It brought you to today. And God's asking you to be a good steward of that, whether it's reminding you of the joyful ones or the painful ones. And so James shared a few weeks ago, and I've been thinking about this since, that uh, within a 10-mile radius of this place, there's, what, a couple hundred thousand people, um, something like that, that have no clue who Jesus is, that they're far from God. Um, they don't know what Jesus did for them. Um, and the truth is they need to know God's story, just like we need to know it. Um, it's not okay that they don't know it. And together, we need to tell this story. We need to accept our invitation and start extending it. Well, here's what's interesting. Charlotte's kind of a unique place to live And the reason is because Charlotte is one of the least what they call post-Christian cities in the United States. It it, it is only 20% post-Christian. Now, to break that down, that means that 80% of people, four out of five people, at some point in their life story were part of a church. They had some experience with it. They had some knowledge of God, some knowledge of Jesus. And so, you know, they have memories that could be jogged. And you know, the truth is they've fallen into, what happens in our world is that people kind of fall into this watered-down Christianity that says, well, we just need to kind of do three things. Uh, and that is that we need to, um, to be good, we need to feel good, and we need to live our life and know God is watching. When I was a little kid, I remember uh, some of y'all, I think it's, gosh, it's probably 25 years old, but Bette Midler had a song, God is watching us from a distance. It's almost like, yeah, God's back there, but you do your thing. Well, but we know, you know, we talk about the gospel every week and it's not about be good, feel good, live your life. It's not just about being good in the eyes of the world. It's about being like Jesus. And sometimes that's not gonna go over well, just like it didn't always go over well for him, but that's what we're called to do. It's not just about feeling good. Uh, It also means that you do good even when it hurts. You do good when it's awkward. You do good even when you're the only one who does good. You be Jesus. Uh, And you may not feel good when you do it. And it's not just knowing that God's watching, it's recognizing, you know, the spirit is actually actively working in me, it's working around me, and there's things going on here, and I probably only see the tip of the iceberg, but, you know, God's gonna reveal more to me. 
And if four out of five people in the broader Charlotte area that includes Concord have memories of the church, they're probably fading right now. And they don't just need memories, though. We've been talking about this whole time. They need memorials. They don't just need to be informed. They need to be inspired. They need to see this big picture that God's good and God is great. And so we can't just plunge out and uh, immediately tell 200,000 people. I, I wish we could. But I do know we can start with ourselves and we can get this right. We can surrender and say, God, if memories are informing me, but you want memorials to inspire me forward into what you're doing and who you are and who I'm supposed to be, all right, I'm in on this. So friends, it's time to build a memorial. Not pass on information, but to welcome God's transformation in our lives. I wanna get inspired about the future of Wren, the future about Concord, what God has in store for his church worldwide. And so in a minute, I want to give you just a second to think on this. I know sometimes we send you out the doors, you know, towards lunch and, and you have intentions of thinking about it, but I think we forget 80 plus percent of what we hear within an hour or two. And I want to give you just two or three minutes as the worship team comes up uh, to think on this. For you, what will it mean to make a memorial? It could mean literally making a pile of stones. It could mean having a wall display, getting your family together, making a coffee table album that you're gonna see every day. Uh, it could be planting something in your, the garden and putting a rock there. It could be a family heirloom. Uh, you know, uh, when it gets to harvest time, I take my grandpa's old seed corn jacket and I'll hang it up and I'll just, I'll, I'll think about the legacy I have um, through him with that. You know, the bottom line is memories inform and memorials inspire. And so I want you to think, God, and just ask him, what memorial do you want me to build? What memories are stirring that I need to nail down with a memorial? And I, I want you to think, what would happen if we took this seriously? What would God do in, within us and outside of us? How would that change how we see God? How would that change how we see ourselves? How would that change how we see our mission? How would it redeem our past, transform our present, and inspire our future? The whole gamut. What would God use this for? So just breathe. If you want to bow your head, close your eyes. Just ask God to speak with you. And say, God, what memorial do I need to build? Because I know that memories inform, but memorials inspire. And we want to leave this place, God. We want to leave this place today not just informed. That's good. God, I know being informed is good, but we want to be inspired, Lord. Inspire us that you're good and you're great, that you're doing big things, that the world and their messages are not the end game. No, it's you, it's your truth. God, don't let us settle for just being good, feeling good and living our lives. No, no. God, let us really live your gospel. Let us be about who you created us to be, what you created us to do, and who you called us to do that with, Lord. Lord, use our memories to inform us, but let us know what memorials do we need to build in our lives to inspire us. That is what we want, God. And God, we just devote this next couple minutes. We're just gonna sit with you. This is your time. Say to us what you want to say to us.